morning, everyone. It's uh, good to come together uh, around God's Word. Um, Mike and Judith, I think, are a bit jet lagged. So uh, if they stay awake throughout the morning, I will think they've done well. <laughs> but before we come to God's Word, let's, uh, let's turn to God in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is living, that it is powerful. And we pray that uh, as we consider a portion of your word this morning, that your spirit would be uh, amongst us and within us to apply your word to our hearts so that we see more of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can become more like him and serve him better. And we ask it in his name, and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, it's something of a Christian cliche to speak of mountaintop experiences. Uh, various things might be thought to qualify to be described in that way. Perhaps um, God's word coming alive in a particularly vivid and powerful way when you're reading your Bible uh, would be an example or feeling the Holy Spirit to be especially and powerfully present as we as we pray. Um, you might consider that a, a Christian conference or, or meeting that's been a great blessing to you uh, to be a mountaintop experience, or even a church away day. Various things you might consider to be a mountaintop experience. But whatever you consider uh, a mountain top experience to be, there is no doubt that these three disciples, Peter, James and John, they had just had one. They had certainly had a mountain top experience as they uh, were with Jesus on the mountain top, uh, as we saw in, in last week's passage. Um, not only had they literally climbed a mountain with Jesus, but they'd seen him incredibly, wonderfully transfigured so that his clothes uh, became radiant, shining bright. And then Elijah uh, and Moses representing the law and the prophets had appeared alongside him. And then the whole experience culminated as they faded away as the voice of God the Father declared, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The law and the prophets have been pointing forward to him for centuries and now he had come. He was there. This, this was momentous. Um, it's as though God was saying, I gave the law, I, I sent the prophets, but this is my son. He, he's greater than them by far. He, above all else, is the one to whom you should listen. What an awe-inspiring experience for those three disciples. However, the nature of mountaintop experiences is that no matter how great and wonderful they might be, they don't last for long. Jesus and the three disciples <coughs> went back down the mountain. And the passage that we're considering today, Mark 9, verses 14 to 29, recounts their post 
mountain top experience. It tells us of their mountain bottom experience. And I think that's very informative for, for us, because as believers in Christ, our Christian lives don't consist of an endless series of mountaintop experiences. Mountaintop experiences, if we experience them at all, are few and far between. The Christian life is mainly lived at the mountain bottom. So we're going to start by considering what they found on their return from the mountaintop. What was the mountain bottom like for them? And what's the mountain bottom like for us? So we read there in verse 14, and when they, that's Jesus and the three disciples, came to the disciples, that's the other nine, they, Jesus and the three, saw a great crowd around them, the other nine, and scribes arguing with them, the other nine disciples. So firstly, Jesus and the three disciples saw some argumentative academics. Some scribes were arguing with the nine disciples and a crowd had gathered round to watch. I imagine this as being a bit like in the playground back in school days. You know, the cry would go up, fight! And a crowd would gather round to gawp at the spectacle. But well, this crowd hadn't gathered to watch actual fisticuffs, but they'd been drawn to this verbal sparring session between the scribes and the disciples. Now the scribes were the, the intellectuals or academics of Jewish society at the time. Um, originally, they had been scholars who, who diligently studied the scriptural manuscripts in order to detect and, and correct uh, scribal errors. But by Jesus' day, their role had, had greatly expanded beyond that and they'd become respected teachers, they'd been the ones who were looked up to as being experts in the law of Moses, they made authoritative pronouncements about how the law was to be understood, how the law was to be uh, applied. Uh, not surprisingly, throughout the Gospel accounts, uh, we repeatedly see the scribes opposing Jesus and arguing with him, because he spoke with a an unprecedented authority, an authority that they didn't have, an authority that was so much beyond uh, anything that they had, and they saw him as a, as a threat to their cosy, established order. So at the mountain bottom, intellectual opposition is to be found. It's a shame for us today. Uh, as we live at the mountain bottom, isn't it? We face intellectual opposition from rationalistic scientists, from militant atheists, such as Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens and the like. Oh, we don't come across them in person, but their views have been so well publicised, so attractively promoted, that they permeate the thinking of most people that we come into contact with. So our biblical views will be challenged, we'll face intellectual opposition. That's part of life at the mountain bottom. Continuing in the passage, we read in verse 15, 
And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So Jesus now entered the scene and the crowd ran to Jesus. Clearly they were excited and pleased to see him, but that Jesus wasn't particularly impressed by this outpouring of popularity. Rather, in verse 16 we read, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now that, in our translation, could seem a bit ambiguous. Um, does, and he asked them, refer to the scribes, or the disciples, or both? Well, in actual fact, the Greek text says, and he asked the scribes. So I don't quite know why the translators would put it like that. So he was addressing the scribes. He was asking, what are you arguing with my disciples about? However, before they could reply, we read in verses 17 and 18, and someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So we're now introduced to a frantic father. This father addressed Jesus as teacher, so he was very respectful. In fact, we're told in the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel that he referred to Jesus as a Lord. So perhaps there was recognition that Jesus was something more than the scribes and the other teachers. But you can be sure that behind this calm and respectful exterior, there was a, a frantic father, or a, a desperate dad. Now, this poor man had specifically tried to bring his son to Jesus. He said, I brought my son to you. You, Jesus. I brought my son to you. Um, we're told in the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel that he said, he is my only son. So obviously very dear to him, very special. Why had he tried to bring his only child to Jesus? It's because his son was terribly afflicted by an evil spirit. So he was desperate for him to be set free and restored to health. Clearly he thought that Jesus was his best hope. So you can imagine how devastated he must have been when he arrived to find Jesus wasn't there, because he'd gone off hill walking with a few of his pals. Well, what a disappointment. He'd specifically gone to Jesus, and Jesus wasn't there. So he went on to say to Jesus, so I asked your disciples to cast it out. Uh, the parallel passage in Luke tells us, he said, and I begged your disciples to cast it out. So this conveys, doesn't it, how, how, how desperate he was. He was in his wit's end. And you can sense the heartache as it went on to say, but they could not. Now we might not come across people at their wit's end because they have a child who's possessed by an unclean spirit, but we are surrounded by people who are desperate in one way or another. Now, there are plenty of parents whose kids haven't been to school or even been able to leave the house since the Covid pandemic and they feel utterly helpless and they're worried sick. There are people who are anxious about how they'll be able to feed their kids. There are some who are desperately trying to cope as an elderly parent is ravaged by dementia. So many people who are so desperate 
in so many ways. And it's not just other people, is it? You know, we're not immune. Uh, we can be affected by such devastating problems ourselves. Again, such is life at the mountain bottom. It involves a great deal of desperation uh, and disappointment. Of course, there wasn't only the frantic father who was suffering here. There was also a suffering son. In speaking of his son, the frantic father said, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now, now these are the, the symptoms of, of epilepsy. And this, I noticed Andrew nodded, so I'm okay with <laughs> That can be a very dangerous disease. You know, I had a cousin who was epileptic, and he died as a teenager because he swallowed his tongue during an epileptic fit in his sleep. So this boy had a very dangerous condition. The father said he often fell into the fire or into water, so he was in constant danger of being harmed. And in addition to that, as though that's not bad enough, he was both mute and deaf. Now, thankfully, most people aren't so terribly afflicted uh, as this, this new death epileptic boy was. Um, but it's certainly true to say that life at the mountain bottom is characterised by much suffering, much danger. Bad enough that this boy was a mute and death epileptic. What was even worse than that was that in his case all of these dreadful afflictions had come about because of a sadistic spirit. Epilepsy, deafness, dumbness, they usually have a perfectly natural explanation. But in verse 17, the boy's father said that he has a spirit that makes him mute. Uh, Jesus went on to address this spirit as you mute and deaf spirit. So it was this spirit that made the boy mute and deaf. And we were also told it was the same spirit that caused the boy's seizures and threw him into, the, into fire and water. So this was a sadistic spirit. It fully intended to cause the boy harm. In fact, we're told it sought to destroy him. But we mustn't think that uh, using the word spirit is just a, a quaint old-fashioned way of uh, trying to explain what was actually just a natural disease. In verse 25, he's referred to as an unclean spirit. In the parallel passage in Matthew 17, it's actually referred to as a demon. So this boy's suffering was demonic in origin. He was demon-possessed. Now, we live in days in which anything like demon possession is incredibly rare. So uh, the effects of, of the devil's work tend not to be seen in such a, a dramatic and outward way. Uh, but we mustn't conclude that the devil is no longer active. He's at work at the mountain bottom. He has his schemes. He sets his snares. His subtle influence is everywhere. The last thing to note about what awaited Jesus and the three disciples at the mountain bottom is that they found nine defeated disciples. 
But in the absence of Jesus, the Father would turn to the nine disciples to cast out the unclean spirit. And that would have seemed a perfectly reasonable thing to do because Mark had recorded earlier in his Gospel that they cast out many demons. You know, they'd done it before. No doubt they felt quite confident that they could fulfil this man's desperate request. They wanted to help. They tried to help. But on this occasion, they were not able. They, they were defeated. They were failures. And that's something else that's to be found at the mountain bottoms. You know, we see failure and defeat in others, and we sometimes experience it for ourselves in all sorts of different ways. So, such is the mountain bottom experience. It's characterised by, by arguments, by opposition, by despair, by disappointments, by suffering, by danger, by unseen demonic schemes, and failure and defeat. It's a pretty gloomy picture, isn't it? But that's what life in this world is like. Um, it's not to say that life is relentlessly awful. You know, there is joy to be found, isn't there? There are heartwarming experiences to be had, but these harsh realities <coughs> are never far away. Well, that was the chaotic situation that confronted Jesus when he came down <coughs> from the mountain. So let's see how he reacted and how he dealt with the various parties involved. Um, firstly, as we've seen, he questioned the argumentative academics. We're told that he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And as we saw, the frantic father interrupted by saying uh, that he brought his son uh, to Jesus and had to resort to asking the disciples uh, and so on. No doubt, that was what the argument centred around. It would have centred around the disciples' inability to cast out the unclean uh, spirit. That's how the, the scribes would have answered if, <laughs> if the father had given them the chance. How did Jesus respond? Well, we read in verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. O faithless generation. It's very reminiscent of what we read in the Old Testament, isn't it? When, when God was disappointed in and exasperated by the constant failure and disobedience of his people. So you get the sense here of Jesus' deep disappointment in his fellow countrymen. Throughout Mark's Gospel, we see Jesus interacting with the religious leaders, his disciples, and the crowds, and none of them understood him. None of them got it. Uh, eventually, the religious leaders arrested him. His disciples abandoned him. The crowd abused him. It's not so much that he's angry here, or being annoyed. Beginning with that word, oh, I think is quite significant. It's a bit like Paul's words in Galatians 3. Remember when he said, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It suggests that this was something that Jesus felt very deeply. 
It was an expression of his personal pain and, and disappointments. It, it was a word of concerned reproof. And he went on to say, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? you know, he was literally saying, How much longer am I going to have to put up with you? How much longer am I going to have to endure? And I think this is an indication to us of how hard it was for Jesus as the perfect God-man to be among us. Yet he lived a life of suffering. And when we think of Jesus suffering, we instantly think of him suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, we think of the excruciating physical pain of the, the crucifixion. We think of the terrible spiritual pain of separation from his father. But you see that the, the general unbelief and wickedness of those around him constantly pained him, constantly made him suffer. You know, he had to endure being here. But despite being so grieved and so burdened, we see that Jesus was also moved with compassion and showed mercy to the frantic father and his suffering son, but by simply saying that those gentle words, bring him to me, bring him to me. And as we live our lives at the mountain bottom, I think we need to ask ourselves, how much like Jesus are we? Do we feel more at home here at the mountain bottom than Jesus did? Or have we got used to it? Do we just say, well, that's the way it is. We just have to put up with it. Life in this world, does it no longer grieve us? Does it no longer cause us concern? But we should be acutely aware of what a wicked world we live in. But that shouldn't lead us to despair. Rather, as with Jesus, it should move us to compassion. You know, there are some Christians who, who love nothing more than to be constantly bemoaning that this world is such a terrible place, such a godless place. Well, it is. That's the truth. But Jesus felt that much more acutely than we ever will. But that didn't stop him from being moved with compassion and showing mercy. Well, do we share Jesus' deep concern and genuine compassion? So, we don't see his care and compassion because he helped the frantic father and the suffering son. They brought the boy to Jesus and we're told that when the spirit saw him, immediately, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus then asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? I don't think Jesus was sort of being like a, a doctor here, asking probing questions in order to try and arrive at a diagnosis. No, he had just seen the symptoms for himself anyway. No, but the father replied, from childhood. I went on to give more detail to show how drastic the boy's condition was. I think Jesus was establishing that this wasn't a one-off, this wasn't a short-term problem, this was well-established, long-term, serious condition, so that if Jesus 
did cast out spirits and, and healed the boy, there could be no doubt that Jesus had done something remarkable. He'd done something miraculous. Well, the boy's father was clearly under no illusion about how heavily, if you like, the odds were stacked against him. He said, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, at the, the outset, he must have been uh, very, very hopeful that Jesus would be able to do something. He specifically gone to Jesus. He'd obviously heard about Jesus. He obviously knew the things that Jesus had done for others. That's where his hope was. He, he, he went specifically to Jesus. But now that the disciples had tried and failed, perhaps it seemed a bit more of a long shot. Now he didn't seem to doubt that Jesus would have compassion on him uh, and, and on his son. He didn't seem to doubt that Jesus would help him if he could. He desperately wanted Jesus to be able to do something, but that doubt in his mind was, would he be able to? Can he do it? I want him to, but can he? He will if he can, but can he? This is very much in, in contrast with the leper that Mark uh, mentioned back in chapter 1. Uh, and the leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to, to him. Uh, kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. He was certain that Jesus had the power to do it. He was in no doubt about that. The doubt in his mind was whether Jesus would be willing to make him clean. And of course that should never have been in doubt. Uh, and the passage goes on to say, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. The leper said, if you will. Jesus said, I will. And went on to do it. You see, Jesus is both willing and able. He both has the compassion and the power. How did the powerful compassion of Jesus respond to the frantic father, who was merely clinging on to this faint hope that Jesus might somehow be able to help him? You know, would he be less kindly disposed towards one who doubted his ability than he had been towards one who doubted his willingness? Of course not. Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. You see, Jesus is saying, liabilities beyond question. The question isn't whether or not I can. The question is whether or not you believe I can. He was saying, do you believe in me? That is the question. That's the question that faces everyone, isn't it? Do you believe in Jesus. And then something truly remarkable happened. This is thrilling because we read immediately the father of the child cried out and said I believe. Help my unbelief. What an amazing profession of faith. And I mean the first thing to notice is that this was immediate. Immediately. You know, just before he'd been so conflicted I think Jesus is willing to, but, but can he? Does he have the power? He was so conflicted. 
but as soon as Jesus challenged his uncertainty, instead of being conflicted, he was convicted. You know, he didn't have to stop and think about it. He didn't weigh the pros and cons. There was a sudden transformation. He instantly declared, I believe. Complete turnaround, a complete change. And then secondly, notice that this was emotional. You know, he didn't say, well, now you put it like that, I suppose uh, I do believe really. Now he cried out and said, I believe. This, this declaration was, was heartfelt. Then this transformation was something that had taken place within his heart. And then thirdly, notice that it was all accomplished by a sense of honesty and humility. That profession of I believe was followed by a petition. Help my unbelief. He was honest enough to admit that his faith wasn't perfect. He was humble enough to ask for help. And he was wise enough to seek that help from Jesus. I think a great encouragement for us uh, in all of this really, uh, as we live out our lives at the mountain bottom. Firstly, despite the, the hostility that surrounds us and the worst efforts of the devil, it shows us that there will be those who come to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is still doing that work of changing hearts, changing minds, working in people so that they come to Christ and declare, I believe that work is going on. It's not something that is down to, to us, it's not something that's down to any individual, it's God's work and it goes on. Now, secondly, what an encouragement it is to us to realise that it's having faith that matters, not having perfect faith. When the Father said, help my unbelief, you know, Jesus didn't say to him, well, work at it. When your faith is a bit stronger, then, then I'll, I'll do something for you. Then he had compassion on him, and he helped him, uh, as we see, uh, as he went on uh, and rebuked the sadistic spirit. Verse 25 we read, And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. These weren't just empty words. Jesus wasn't merely saying what the frantic father would have wanted to hear. Um, Mark's account continues uh, by saying, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. In response to Jesus' rebuke, this unclean spirit had one final defiant fling, but he was no match for Jesus. At Jesus' command, uh, we're told that it came out. Uh, and Jesus said, never enter him again, I'm, I'm sure. It never did. Once Jesus cast spirit out, it stays out. First and foremost, we see the power and authority of Jesus in action here. And as we live our lives at the mountain bottom, we can take great comfort from the fact that he is still in control. But we're also seeing his compassion in action here, aren't we? In the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, 
we're told, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Now, as in Mark's account, Luke says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. Now, unlike Mark's account, Luke says that Jesus healed the boy. Mark had said that he uh, commanded the unclean spirit to come out, and it had done so. But, but healing the boy and casting out the unclean spirit really amounted to the same thing, because it was the unclean spirit that, that was the cause of the boy's condition. But then Luke adds and gave him back to his father. What a, a lovely, tender moment that must have been. You know, I'd love to have seen the father and uh, witnessed uh, how he responded to that. You know, can you imagine how the father must have felt as Jesus gave his son, son back and he was no longer mute? No longer deaf, no longer epileptic. Now, what would have been the first words that he heard his son say uh, as he exercised his newly restored power of speech? How precious those words would have been to him. Now, what would be the first words that the son would hear with his newly restored sense of hearing? Now, what a wonderful, joyful scene that must have been. Uh, and Luke goes on in... Uh, in chapter 9 verse 43 uh, of his account and all were astonished at the majesty of God but previously when Jesus had healed a deaf man in the region of the Decapolis, the crowd had been astonished so as colloquially you'd say they were gobsmacked well now they were astonished and they recognised that in seeing Jesus cast out an unclean spirit they witnessed the majesty of God. This was God's work. This was God. At, uh, this was God's doing. Uh, Jesus was working as God in revealing the majesty of God. They recognised this had been God's doing, and they were astonished at what Jesus had done. Here at the mountain bottom we'll come across people who find Jesus pretty amazing. But being amazed at what he's said and what he's done isn't enough. Now, as was the case with the boy's father, there must be faith in what Jesus can and will do. There needs to be that change of hearts that only God can achieve. And then finally, we see that Jesus taught the defeated disciples. Reading verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind, uh, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In the parallel account in Matthew, uh, we're told... Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. Now this is a, a lovely, peaceful postscript, really, to what had been a, a very busy and demanding day. And now we see Jesus and his disciples away from the crowds. You know, they're having some downtime. And you know, even in the midst of the the trials and tribulations of 
life at the mountain bottom. <coughs> it is possible to sometimes have peace and quiet and how we should thank God for such times and use them wisely. After their abject failure, the disciples could very easily have felt ashamed of themselves, perhaps been a bit sheepish around Jesus, though they might have feared that Jesus would say, what do you think you were playing at? That would have been a complete PR disaster if I hadn't come along uh, and saved the situation, if I hadn't have bailed you out. But rather than steering clear, we're told that they came to Jesus privately. And I think that tells us a lot about Jesus, doesn't it? He was approachable. They, they knew what he was like. Even though he'd, he'd said earlier, oh, faithless generation, and how long am I to be here with you? How long am I to bear with you? They were confident enough to come to him, knowing that he wouldn't turn them away. You know, as, as predicted of old, you know, a broken reed, he will not break. A smouldering wick, he will not quench. It doesn't matter how much we mess up. Our first thought must always be to come to Jesus. And so they came to him and they asked the question, why could we not cast it out? And in answer, Jesus took the opportunity to teach them what was well, both a very simple lesson and a very difficult lesson. You know, according to Mark, he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But the passage in Matthew said, because of your little faith. And there's no, there's no contradiction there, is there? The real prayer depends on faith. It's based on faith. You don't go to God and ask for something if you don't believe that he's the one that can do it. True prayer is based on faith. It shows that, they, that we're utterly dependent on the Lord. And real faith, well, it will drive us to prayer, won't it? If we really believe that only the Lord can do something, well, we'll go and ask. So that's what we need to learn, isn't it? We, we need our faith to be strong, and we need that strong faith to uh, drive us to, to God in prayer. So life at the mountain bottom is tough. We'll face arguments and opposition, despair, disappointment, suffering, danger, demonic schemes, failure, defeat. That's the bad news. The good news is we don't face it alone. Just as Jesus entered the scene when he came down from the mountain... If we've come to faith in him, he's entered our life. He's entered our situation. We've entered his kingdom. He cares for us. He helps us. He encourages us. He speaks to us. He hears us. In his kingdom, despite everything else, all things are possible. So may we be realistic about the situation we're in in this world, but also be deeply thankful to God that we have such a Saviour who is with us and cares for us. Amen. Amen. Amen.